My friends who listen to Future Primitive, I am on the phone with visionary floral sculptor Anthony Ward. He is an artist and a businessman living in Northern California. He travels the world sharing his deep love of flowers by creating for weddings, teaching workshops, and creating public and private altars and prayer performances at transformational festivals. He and Christopher Issa are currently producing the feature-length documentary Dancing with Flowers. Anthony can be found online at www.beanwithflowers.com, Facebook and Instagram, and Twitter. His book is called Being with Flowers, Floral Art as Spiritual Practice, Meditations on Conscious Flower Arranging to Inspire. Anthony, I think I will begin by asking you, what flowers do you have around you right now? What flowers embrace you? garden right now. I live in Northern California and we've had a couple of frosts and so right now the only thing that, so the only flowers that are holding on are marigolds. So, so they're the ones that are just holding on at this moment. But also in the garden we have um, nasturtium that are peeking up out of the ground now. So very soon we will have nasturtium as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Edible flowers? Um, not really. We, there, there are actually some, um, yeah, some of the nasturtium are coming up and yes, they are edible. They're, they have a beautiful peppery taste. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So, um, maybe you, um, want to talk about how you began to not fall in love, but share an eternal love with flowers? Well, it really, really has a lot to do with my maternal grandmother. Pretty much, she was a very, very strong and fierce lady, and many of her grandchildren were afraid of her because she was always very bossy. She was very bossy. So she had this very fierce air about her. Then she would go into her garden, and she would become this soft, angelic, smiling person, and I, I was fascinated by that. I was, I would say to my mother, who, who is that woman in the garden? She's certainly not. We, we called her Ma. Ma, that was her, her name that all of her grandchildren called her. Mm -hmm. And so I was fascinated by that. Just, just that she made this transformation. And so I followed her out into the garden, and I would just walk behind her as she was caring for her flowers. And then I noticed the flowers. Then I noticed what she was doing, and I noticed the colors and the fragrance. And 
the, the gentleness of what she was doing, and that's what really brought me to appreciating flowers. So that was the beginning of that. Mm-hmm. And then just having my own garden. I had my own garden, and that was a very big part of my introduction to, to being with flowers. Did your grandmother live to see your relationship with flowers evolve? No, she didn't. Right. She didn't. Right. But my mother did. Yeah. My yeah. mother my mother lived to, to see that. And um, it meant a lot to her, really, to see that. I love uh, in your book when you say sometimes... Uh, when my mother gazed at me, it felt like the sun was rising on my face. Yes. She, so my mother had eight children. My mother and father were together um, my whole life. And um, she had eight children. And some of us were like really good, well-behaved. And some of us were a little more rambunctious. But she would make each and every one of us feel like we were the special child. I don't know how she did that, but it was a very amazing thing that she could do. And there would be times that she looked at me as though the sun was rising on my face with this wonderment, with this love, with this just deep presence. And that's when people ask me, you know, what is my favorite flower? I don't have a favorite flower because I've learned to love all flowers, kind of like the way my mother loved us all. Whatever one I happen to be holding is my favorite flower. <laughs> That's my favorite flower. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Well, you love sunflowers, right? Sunflowers. I certainly do. The sunflower is a flower you brought to the Dalai Lama the first time you met him, right? It is. It is. I, I had um, the honor of meeting His Holiness in 1996 at an event in Los Angeles, I mean, excuse me, in San Francisco, called uh, Peacemaking, the Power of Nonviolence. And I was invited to that event, to work at that event, because a Tibetan nun who lived in, in the town of Santa Cruz, where I used to live, had seen the work that I did for Ram Dass. Uh, Ram Dass was the first spiritual teacher that I did my work for, and... That day when I was with Ram Dass, I, it changed my whole perception of what I was doing and my, the whole direction of what I wanted to do with my work. I sat down and I heard him speaking with such love and such grace that I immediately just made this prayer and this affirmation that I wanted to connect with people that I see lifting the vibration on this planet, lifting the people of this planet. And... So I just made that this prayer, and every day I would think of it. And so I met this Tibetan nun, and she said, you know, the Dalai Lama is coming. And I saw what you did for Ram Dass, and would you like to do that for, for the Dalai Lama? <laughs> of course. Wow. Yes, yeah. please, yes. Yes. It was about five, five months later or so that, I, that this happened. And then so when I did the work for, for the Dalai Lama in San Francisco, I was able to do his hotel suite, and his sitting room, and, you know, just, we were able to make it very special. And I had um, flower distributors in the area 
just open their coolers of flowers and just say, help yourself, take whatever you want. Great. That was one of the, one of the things of, of working for uh, this group that I worked for called Tibet House. I made a proposal of what I wanted to do for this, this big conference, the peacemaking conference. And I said, you know, I want to do this, this, that, that, that. And they were like, you know, that's a lot of money. Like, what? we don't have this kind of money. Actually, the, the person in charge was a woman named Nena Thurman, who was the wife of Robert Thurman, um, the renowned uh, Tibetan scholar. And they were very sort of taken aback by all the things that I wanted to do. And I said, no, no, I want to do this as a donation. I don't want money from this. I, I want to donate all of this, all of the stuff I'm saying. So they were very happy about that. And he, the, the work that we did was, you know, deeply felt, as, as all of our work is. And His Holiness really, they, well, they said, you know, every time he sees one of your arrangements, he's like, who made this? Who made this? Who? So they made a special time for me to meet with him. And, um, and I said, you know, when I meet him, I'm going to give him a sunflower. <laughs> I didn't know you're not supposed to give them gifts when you meet him, but I brought a sunflower to him. Beautiful. And he took it. And really the thing that most impressed me about him, and since then I've done about 11 altars where, where he's speaking on that I've done flowers for. But the thing that impressed me the most about him was he is as innocent as he is wise. And he has a way of finding the saddest person, the, the person who's the most ill mm-hmm. in the whole room, and, he, and he'll go right up to whoever that is and just spend time with them. Who, and he, he has this innate way of, of knowing that. And that's, it's really fascinating and beautiful to, to witness. So do you, do you feel that as well, if, if, if your aim is... If your aim is compassion, do you see who is the person who needs it the most and bring them a flower? You know, I, I'm not the Dalai Lama. No, I don't. <laughs> you know, I, with my work, I know that there's healing and, and joy and beauty that all of us can, can benefit from. So first of all, I do this work for myself, for my own healing, for my own love of, of, of the planet. Mm-hmm. And then through that, I'm able to bring it to other people. And, and really, there are altars and floral pieces that no one will, will ever see besides myself mm-hmm. and, and the creator and the sky and the trees. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the reason that I do it is, is simply... First, to enrich and enliven my own connection with the earth. The fact that I get to do this all over the world and share it with people is amazing. And it sustains my life. And I'm humbled by that. But I don't do I first first it's for me and then it's for everyone else. You know? Right. Well you bring beauty to beauty, don't you? You know, I, it's a very humbling thing. So I know that I have some artists, friends, and I know other people who work, even with, with flowers, who might carry an ego of it with them. But for me, 
at a flower, I'm humbled. And to me, every flower is a masterpiece. And just the fact that I get to touch them and work with them and play with them and arrange them is amazing to me. But it's very simple for, for me to keep a very level head and know that the best that I can do is be of service. And yes, bring the beauty to people and share that with people. Um, but it's already there. That's, that's the thing. I don't have this weight of, of ego with me because I, I, I know that every flower is already amazing. If I put one sunflower in a vase, that is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I know that. Yeah, so, beautiful. It's very simple. Yeah, the the innocence of flowers is, is, is sort of like the innocence of tiny children, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah. My friend Alex Gray, the, the amazing visionary artist um, painter, mm-hmm. says that flowers are the momentary face of God. Beautiful. And I, I find that so deep. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering how who flowers have made you see being involved with so much beauty that's what i mean uh who who are you this man who for years and years and years has been involved with so much innocent beauty how has it helped you blossom as a human being beautiful things about flowers is that it is momentary it's ephemeral the beauty of what we consider beauty beauty the, the when they're at their most peak and most prime and most um, alluring that doesn't last very long and that to me is part of the beauty of it some people say oh i don't like to get flowers because i end up just dying well but they remind me to appreciate them in every moment at every stage of development and decay. And they're a very beautiful time-elapsed version of our own temporal nature. So they invite me to appreciate the now. I, I spent uh, 12 years of my life, about half of the year, at a place called the Omega Institute in upstate New York, the, the most noted um, holistic learning center in the country, really. Mm-hmm. And while I was there, one of the many, many amazing people go through and share their wisdom. And when the book The Power of Now came out, Eckhart Tolle came, and he, he spoke. And I, had, I did an arrangement that I sat next to him. And people in the workshop came up to me and they said, you know, Eckhart keeps looking at your work and pointing at it and saying, you want to know what the power of now is? Look at these flowers. Look, right. this is the power of now. So that that presence that nature gives us is like the changing, the leaves falling off. You know, the, the the leaves of the daffodil bursting through the earth. That is that it calls you to the moment, and in a very beautiful and amazing way, um, flowers can call us to the moment. Eckhart was a very important part of my journey, too, because he, when I, he, I met him um, right after that conference. His, his partner, Kim, said that he wanted to meet me. And when I met him, he said, you know, when you do a book, I want to do the board for your book. 
Uh-huh. And I was like, Eckhart, come on. Right. Really? And he, he said, yes, because you had, he, he told me that when he wrote A New Earth, the first two pages are about flowers. He said, you know, it, I inspired him to do that. And I said, okay, listen, that's all you have to write. Right. <laughs> that's Stop now. I can put that in the yeah. But, but that, that didn't end up happening. But he, he knew, he believed in me more before I did. He, you know, he didn't say if you write a book. He said when you write a book. So that really planted a seed for me. He's been really, really lovely in my life. We're not, it's not that we're like close friends or anything, but he guided me in this way and made me, helped me see deeper the meaning of the work that I'm, I've been doing. Beautiful, yep. beautiful. I want to ask you what you think about the fact that uh, people of my generation were called flower children, mm. F- flower power. Wow. Yeah. You know, I've never really thought about that, but that's because I, th- I think it was a time when people were connecting deeper into their own spirits, and I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that people were experimenting with psychotropic things like the mushrooms and different things like that, that were opening them up in different ways that humanity had not really done before. And a lot of that, I think, led people right back to nature and right back to the flowers. I mean, the the flowers have been here with us so long. One of the things that I think is so amazing that Eckhart hypothesized about Mm -hmm. in A New Earth was that flowers were perhaps the first thing that humans took in and noticed just because they were beautiful. So the real, the recognition of beauty was an amazing step forward in in the consciousness of humanity, just recognizing beauty. Yeah. So so I I think that perhaps reconnecting with that um, through, you know, different doorways like like the psychotropic things um, really brought people back. And during that time, I mean, a lot of people were, were experimenting with LSD and that sort of, and it was bringing them back to the to the flowers. You know, I never thought about that, but that's my answer. Beautiful, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, and what yeah. you're what you're saying, which is amazing, I could just see it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a human, looking at a flower was probably the first recognizable work of art. Exactly. And, exactly. And also, I, everybody can draw a flower. Anybody mm-hmm. who can't, can't draw at all, like myself, can draw mm-hmm. a flower. I can draw a flower. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Most... Um, so, um, how about Maya Angelou? She, um, not only did you meet her, but when you were quite young, and uh, uh, were you studying ballet at the time? Because we want to talk about dance, of course. Uh, um, I, when I first heard of Maya Angelou, I was 13 years old, and it was at a time in my life when I was not feeling so great about myself. I, I, my family, I had uh, two older brothers and they're kind of very macho kind of Mm. little boys. And I, at the time, 
was really kind of embracing my feminine side. And they kind of freaked out about it. And my parents kind of freaked out about it, too. And I just remember, well, I was in seventh grade, and I had a teacher who went to a teacher's conference. And it was a woman that most of us didn't really like so much. She was kind of really bossy and really, she was, you you kind of dreaded going to her classroom. And she came back from a teacher conference that she had gone to, and Maya Angelou was the keynote speaker of this teacher conference. Mm -hmm. And she really came back a changed person. She came back from, when she left, she was this kind of very stiff, never smiling, bossy person. And she came back and she was smiling and her hair was different and her whole aura was different. And she told us about this woman named Maya Angelou who had spoken to them. And she shared about her book called I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. And and she read some of the book to us. And I ended up just going to the library and getting the book myself and taking it home and reading it. And, and, you know, the, the way that Dr. Angelos shared her pain and her, like, the really horrible incident of her early life where she was raped when she was eight years old. And, and, and then I read the whole book, so I got to see from that anguish, from that heart, childhood, she became the amazing woman that we all know Dr. Maya Angelou to be. So for me, it was a way of just like, you know, if she got through what she got through, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to get through Mm -hmm. what I'm going through now Mm -hmm. because she got through it and she became this amazing human being. So that it meant so much to me. And I know that it meant to, to many, many other people. I, I, um, have read that when Oprah Winfrey was the girl, she was being routinely molested by different people in her family, but she yeah. had a copy of that book under her bed, yeah. and she would take that book out and read it and feel the same way that I felt, you know, that, okay, I'm going to get through this because she got through it. And really one of the great joys of my life is that I was able to share that with, with <clears throat> Dr. Angelo myself in person alone at her apartment with her in New York. She was so kind. When when I told her I was moving to New York, I had I was living in Santa Cruz at the time, and along with that that affirmation of I want to create with people that I see uplifting the planet, I took tangible steps to do to doing that. So when I found out Maya Angelou was doing a keynote speech, I decided that I would go and reach out to the people and, and offer my floral work mm. just to see just to see if, if they would want my floral work. And they said yes. So I met her a couple of times. And at the last event, I said, you know, I'm moving to New York. And she said, well, here's my phone number. When you get to New York, call me. So I did. And she was she really helped me a lot. She, and, she had a party once, and she asked me to do flowers for it. It was a Christmas party, and the room was filled with an illustrious group of people of all walks of life, mm-hmm. the, you know, the movers and shakers of New York City. And at one point during the gathering, she said, okay, I want everyone to stop and look around at all of these flowers. 
look at look at some of them. Some of them are so explosive and expansive. Some of them are very nuanced and small and gentle. Well, this young man, this is Anthony Ward. He just moved here from New York to New York. He doesn't know anyone, and I want you all to help him. I want you to all to do anything you can to help. So that's what she did for me. You know, it was, she wow. she was very instrumental in, in my life in New York. And she called yeah. you a floral sculptor. Yeah, one one evening at, at one of the performances, we were standing in the wings, and she said, you know, Anthony, you are not a florist. You are a floral sculptor. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> Thank you. And um, so that is, that's where that word comes from. She coined the word for me, floral sculptor. She said, you know, this is your word. You are a floral sculptor, my dear. Beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> it uh, it validates the phrase I got from your book: "God's work is not done by God; it's done by people." Ah, Anita Franco. Anita Franco. Franco. Okay. Yeah, yeah. She 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 said those words. Right. It's amazing. Right, right. And so you wanted to talk about the dance you said? Yes, very much, and the um, and the let's say, the sacred marriage between flower and dance? Mm -hmm. Well, when I was in high school, I was about, and when I was about 17, I think I was 17, I decided that I wanted to, to start taking dance. But ever since I was a very small child, I loved to dance. Um, so we had eight children, and each of us had our own way of getting attention. Well, my way of getting attention was that I loved to dance. And so sometimes when we'd have a gathering, my father would say, come on out here and put on a show for us that I would dance. And at the time, at that time in my life, on Saturday morning, there was a show that came on called Soul Train. And Soul Train was my, I couldn't wait all week long to see that show. And so when I was 17, I decided I was living in, in a little town called Lompoc, California. And there was a dance studio there. So, and I knew some girls in, in class that took ballet and different types of dance there. So I, I went to the studio and it turned out that the teacher was, her teachers were, were professional dancers from the New York City Ballet. So they were very amazing professional teachers. So she had really great ballet technique. And so I went to take class there. And she said, you know, for the first two years, I'm, you, I don't want you to take the jazz or the modern. I just want you to take ballet because you need to get a very firm, good grasp okay. on technique. Mm -hmm. So I know you have rhythm. I know you can move. But I want you to get... And it was the best thing in the world for me to have that, that kind of training, real training. And, and, and it's interesting because with the floral work, I did that same sort of thing myself with the... Zen art called Ikebana, which is the Japanese Zen art of floral arranging. And mm -hmm. I consider it sort of the ballet of floral arranging. Yeah. Because just, just like in ballet, you go to the bar, if you're Mikhail Brishnikov, or if you're just starting off every day, you start at the bar. Mm -hmm. You start with the basics. You go back to square one. And Ikebana is a very restrained style of floral arranging. And it's just like, just like ballet, just like that same training. And so, Often, when Japanese people see my work, they, they say, this is Japanese. This is, 
you have like, do you know about Ikebana? Because there, there's, there's that structure underneath the work. Just, yeah. So, I think it was, I think it was around 2002, and this was at Omega Institute as well. I, when I was there, it was my job, my job and my honor to do floral arrangements for all of the workshops that came through. And, you know, we would have Sipak Chopra one week, and Thich Khan would come through, and Tim and Children, and then, you know, Bobby McFerrin came, and different, any type of yoga. We, we had um, the great Kundalini yoga teacher, Gurmukh Khalsa, come through. And so that was my job there, just to do the flower arrangements. And one evening I was sitting and talking with, with a woman who was on the board of directors of Omega, uh, Linda Goldstein, is her name. And she, she said, you know, I love your floral work, but what else have you done in your life? What, what have you done besides working with flowers? I mean, I love that work, but what, what else have you done? And I said, well, you know, before that I, I danced. I was a dancer, and, and the flowers took over my life. But before that, that's what I did. And she said, oh, well, I'm Bobby McFerrin's manager, and he's doing a show where he doesn't know who's coming on stage, and he'll meet an artist on stage, and then they just create together. How would you like to go on stage and just dance and make a floral arrangement while Bobby is singing? And <laughs> it took me two seconds to say yes. Yes, where, and when. And um, it was 2002, the, the San Francisco Jazz Festival, and we worked it out so that I would be the encore of the performance because I was going to fill the stage up with all sorts of things. Um, and while he was standing, taking his encore, receiving applause, in fact, me and my team put two six-foot tables, a pedestal with a glass base, which was four feet tall, cone-shaped glass, just simple, very simple line. And Bobby came out and he said, what is all this stuff? What's going on? Mm-hmm. And I said, you sing, and I'm going to make something. And he and I were on stage for about 15 minutes. And he started off with Gregorian chants, beautiful Gregorian chants. And then he went into Prince's Kiss, that song Kiss. And what I decided was wherever he goes, I am going to go there with him. I mean, he's a master of improvisation. So all I was going to do is just go along with him and just play, just play. And... So, yeah, we, we did this thing for like 15 minutes. And he was, you know, having, he had the audience singing along with him. And, and it was this magical, amazing thing that happened in those 15 minutes. And one of the people in the audience was um, the vocalist and spiritual activist, really, Michael Bronte. Mm-hmm. He was there because he, he and I were friends. And I said, Michael, come and see what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do, but come. And he came. And he said, you know, I was in tears the whole time you guys were on stage, and I wonder if you would do that with my band, Spearhead. And so I started doing that work with, with his band. And you know, I don't know if you, are you familiar with Michael Franti? Yes. 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 You are? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Great Good. music. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone should be. Because to yeah. me, he's like Definitely. Bob Marley and John Lennon all rolled into one body. <laughs> Yes, Just yes, he dancing comes. dancing and making he, everyone sing together. It's so beautiful what he does. He comes to so Santa Fe and, and raises the uh, enthusiasm level. 
exactly. It's yeah. so beautiful. It gets everyone singing together and dancing together. And so um, I started doing shows with him. And at one of the shows, there was a, a young man named Zach Velmer. He's, he's the drummer of a, an electronic band. It's a live band, but they make electronic music. But it's like a live drummer, not a drum machine. They're called STS9. And they tour all over the world. But the, he was, my friend Zach is the drummer for that band. And he was there and he, he invited me to perform with, with their band. And I started performing with them. And then from there, I, I connected with a, an electronic music producer uh, who goes by the name of Tipper. And he, he, his music is amazing. It is, he's, you know, he's a trained musician and, he does very, um, uh, I would say, ambient, mm-hmm. some very ambient, beautiful, almost classical kinds of things, and then more hard-driven things as well. But he was the first electronic music um, producer. And then from there, I've been, I've been creating with musicians um, a very many different varying styles of music. I've, I've created with uh, Deva Primal and Mitten. Uh-huh. At one point, yeah. uh, Sanatam Kar mm-hmm. and um, my friend Katya Graneva. And Katya is a classical pianist. She actually, it'll, this year will be the 18th year that she's performing at Carnegie Hall. She plays there every year. She, she's, she's really, truly, I mean, it's soul music when she gets at the piano and starts playing. It's just, it's so beautiful what she does. You know, she, she, she specializes in in the romantic, the Chopin, and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that's what she really does. But she uh, she and I have done a piece together as well. I, I, I just think that wherever I'm actually really moved by the music, and I love any music that moves me. The yeah. flowers are the dancers, or you and the flowers dance as one? What, what really happens is... I employ all of my training and instinct and innocence, and I get out of the way and let the flowers move through me right. into the vase. Yeah. Wow. That's what happens. There's a lot of, a lot of the, the performances I've done. Um, you can see them on YouTube if you just put in Anthony Ward being with flowers. Yes. Um, there are many, many, many performances that people can look at if they'd like. Yes, yes, we've we've definitely looked at quite a few. Oh, okay. So, um, maybe talk about um, making altars and mm. how this has altered yours and other people's spiritual life. he gave me is an altar is really a place to put special things and in a special way and for me if you you can put just a single flower somewhere and that can be an altar um some of my favorite altars are are out in nature and they're already there (laughs) they're already there i mean majestic majestic um redwood trees you know i had the honor of doing a wedding this past summer um, at an area where there were a circle of redwood trees, 
and that was that was the altar for for this particular writing that I did. Um, Would that be it, like a gathering of gods? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To me, it, it, it the art of altar making is the art of making your life sit more sacred. If you set aside a place in your home um, or in your yard, just a place where you can go and become, you know, be still, and that you, in that stillness, can bring your energy to a place of, of making, of, of honoring what is, you know. So, and, and if you're able to bring pictures of loved ones and um, memories, that makes it all the more special. There's a chapter in, in the book about altar making and, and suggestions mm -hmm. for people for that as well. Mm -hmm. One of the really beautiful things about the book is that every chapter begins with a different meditation. So the first one is a single flower meditation, and it simply it, it comes from the amazing artist Georgia O'Keeffe, who said, if you take a flower and hold it in your hand, then that becomes your world for that moment. So you simply... Take a flower and hold it in your hand and with just, you know, silence and presence, observe the flower, you know, you can smell it and touch the petals. But just make, these things make our lives more sacred. And that's something that all of us can do, but it's just a choice. It's a choice. How sacred do you want your own journey to be? How important it is, is it for you to just take time and and gift yourself with that. And uh, Anthony, I, I thought that uh, in closing, it might be a really beautiful thing for you to read a meditation from your book. I think that's a great idea. And um, there is, there's another thing that we were talking about, too, that I would love to share a little bit from the book as well. Um, this isn't part of the meditation, but we were talking about the temporal nature of flowers. Um, so I thought it, it might be nice to read a little bit from that, from, the, from that section of the book as well. And you can see whatever, of, whatever works into what we're doing, if, if, that, if that's fine with you. That would be great.
you share your love of flowers with others. The temporal nature of flowers can remind us not to take this breath for granted. Inhaling gardenias, garden roses, plumeria, fragrant lilies, or a host of other flowers can be what we called what we call heaven on earth. Earth, this beautiful blue planet, the only home we know, gifts us every day with life-giving water, soul-stirring sunsets, cool breezes on hot days, and the glory of the garden flowers. So that's from the temporal nature of flowers. And as I said, you know, every... When we first started doing the book, the the book is published by Quarto Publishing, and I was so surprised and happy when they actually reached out to me to ask me to do a book because they'd seen some of my work. And the fellow that I was working with, a fellow called Tim Timkowski, asked me, you know, wouldn't it be special, or, or how, how would you feel about doing a different meditation for the beginning of each chapter? And... It, it was really interesting because I had been doing these meditations for myself and for for classes. I teach a workshop um, called Being with Flowers, and I, it's a workshop that I've taught at Omega Institute many, many years, and I've also taught it out on the West Coast as well. And um, so he said, "Let's. Well, how would you feel about doing a meditation for each chapter? And so we do start each chapter with a meditation, and... In this chapter, um, we the, the meditation uh, for the chapter called Celebrations of Life is the ancestral flower meditation. Okay. And it's simply this. We typically think of an ancestor as one who is generations before us, our grandparents. But anyone who's, who's come before us is also an ancestor. For this meditation, please... Pick somewhere special to you and someone special to you who has departed the earthly plane. Choose a single bloom, perhaps one your ancestor particularly liked or enjoyed. Now is the time to hold the flower gently, breathe easily, and recall a story, a feeling, or perhaps a sound that helps you bring the person to your present mind. Maybe you have a picture of this person which could help bring them fully to your attention. It is a time to honor and a time of remembrance of this person who has come before you. Do you remember their laughter? Is there a story you were told that helps bring them to your mind in a special way? Allow this meditation to bring you a sense of connection to your ancestor. While sitting still, gently holding the flower and what it's offering to you, please close your eyes and then open them to what comes before you. This meditation is a time to release any, any intentionally held resentment or unfinished business as well. For 20 mindful breaths, Allow yourself to connect with that person that you 
that brought life to you. Simply hold the flower, receive its beauty, and breathe gently, mindfully, 20 breaths. When you are finished with this meditation, please place the flower on your altar. And that's it. Well, that's very sweet, Anthony. Thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for helping me share my work. I, I, I realized very many years ago that the high reason that I came into this body, into this life, was to do this work. And so many people have helped me and, and, and guided me in, in, in that. And you are one of those people now, and I appreciate that so very much. I, I absolutely receive what you're saying, and uh, it will become, it is becoming a flower in my life. Oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you so much.